Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. So my name is Jimmy and I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, My relationship with food for me is best described by my relationship with sugar. Uh, I'm an insulin dependent diabetic. I have been since 1987, but I've been uh, attracted by sugar since I was a little kid. Um, When I'm one of eight children, And when we were young, there was never enough cookies for the children. So my mother locked them up so the kids couldn't eat them when she didn't give them to her. Being enterprising, I figured out how to get a key to the lock and then could have access to the cookies whenever I wanted. And I still remember the feeling that eating those cookies gave me like a buzz. You know, the fascination continued through my teens. I'd go to the uh, variety store and buy, you know, in those days, a nickel was a lot, buy 25 cents worth of candy, and then eat the candy until I felt that same buzz. I'm uh, also an alcoholic and a drug addict. And as soon as I began, uh, I'm clean and sober for 36 years. As soon as I began uh, using alcohol and drugs, I found that same buzz there that I found in sugar. And I continued that until I was 30 and it was time for me to get clean and sober. In the big book, it talks about Bill talks about how the alcoholic can make use of sugar to reduce the cravings. And so I did to the point where I developed diabetes and then I continued notwithstanding the diabetes. Um, I have seen lots of what I'll call stormy days during the course of my recovery. You know, both parents died. I'd been married for 35 years and my wife was diagnosed with emphysema. Uh, She died five years later. Uh, I got to nurture her through the last five years of her life uh, and found in doing that a way to give back the love. Once she died, I began eating uh, Oreos and Haagen-Dazs every night. I didn't make the connection then with what in OA is called eating your feelings, but that that was exactly what I was doing. Uh, I had had issues with weight from before then, and I would put on 50 pounds and then lose it and then put it on, and after she died, I kept it on. 
This continued until it was time for me to face my compulsive overeating, and this was January 2018. And I had worked the steps many times, but I found that working the steps in OA was deeper and clearer than I had ever been. My sponsor urged me to do writing, and so I did tons of writing. I found that when I write about what's going on, things come up which wouldn't come up in conversation. And those things require me to dig fairly deeply. So that I was powerless over my compulsive overeating was pretty clear. Um, very early on, I'd say within the first week, I decided to become abstinent from sugar with the encouragement of my sponsor. Uh, that abstinence has continued to today, which for me is beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, it was just a way of life for me. Of course, eating all kinds of other unhealthy stuff was also part of my uh, problem. So that's the problem. Let me talk a little bit about the solution because the literature says the problem doesn't matter. Five minutes. Thank you. When I first became abstinent, all of these feelings welled up feelings of anger, feelings of resentment, feelings of embarrassment, feelings of shame. Uh, and I didn't really know what to do with them. So I told my sponsor that it seemed like I had the first step that I was powerless, but I was struggling with the second step. And she pointed out when I gave her a list of all of the things that were going on, that, that those reactions, although based on what seemed to be sensible perceptions, were insane. It talks in the big book about anger and resentment being the luxury of normal folks. And so I had to keep inventorying about those, those angers and those resentments. And I had to come to believe that God could restore me to sanity. I said, well, that's never going to happen. Uh, given my brain, I, I can't say God would restore me to sanity. She said, it doesn't say would. It says could. Can you believe in the possibility? And the answer was yes. And then, like, it was unknown to me that there was a connection between my emotions and the way that I ate. And in focusing on the third step, it became obvious that that emotional connection was there. 
uh, I was swinging from highs to lows and uh, not really knowing what to do about them. She suggested more writing and it came up that those behaviors were not healthy for me, that I needed to maintain a more even emotional keel without eating to stuff my feelings. And so I stumbled around and eventually got to the point where I had turned my life and my will over to the care of God. That took us to step four. I had done a bunch of four steps before, but this one was more focused than any of the other ones I'd done before. I had uh, both my parents died uh, and they were very cruel to their children. In the course of a long, bloody, drawn-out divorce, they both used their children as pawns. And my mother suffered from a severe mental illness, which made her use of the children as pawns particularly cruel. Um, My sponsor said, well, you can't reach them, but you can write them letters about what happened and about what your mistakes were and how those mistakes on your part fit into the picture. I said, well, it's really hard to give context to my part in it without talking about their part in it. He said, okay. She said, okay. Um, and so I began to write. It came out where I was morally wrong. The, the focus was not so much on them, if at all, but on my reactions to what occurred. And in looking at those patterns, I could see pretty clearly what my character defects were. Behaviors which used to be survival behaviors, which were no longer useful to me. Um, so I had a good start. Ten minutes. I had a good start on uh, what my defects were. And I asked God to remove them. It's my experience that defects don't get magically lifted out of my life. That they're deep-seated behavior patterns, which are not easy to just shake off. But what I get, if I pay attention, is knowledge that I have the defects. So then when the opportunity comes up to exercise defects, uh, I choose another way. It's like you come to a Y in the road, and to the left is the same old, same old, and to the right is another way, which some people call God's way. And I have to make a conscious choice 
to do what I know to be the less selfish and more selfless way. Um, oh, for example, my daughter was born and had spina bifida. And uh, we, I got health insurance through my job, which they pretty much extended to me, even though I wasn't qualified for it. And I also had insurance through the state. So when she was hospitalized, I got two checks to reimburse me, one of them from the state and one of them from my work. And I cashed both checks. And um, I was ashamed. And uh, my sponsor suggested that I go back to my employer and give them back the money and explain what I had done, which I did. That experience made it so I don't want to repeat that pattern of behavior because the consequences are so hard. Um, somehow, in the process of working the steps and, you know, giving over to God, my deep-seated characterological defects become just shortcomings. And they're just issues like everybody else has. They shrink to a more realistic and proper size. And that uh, is a benefit. So, with regard to eight, there have been some egregious mistakes that I've made over my life. And those mistakes continued once I got clean and sober. The pattern of mistakes. Um, so I was able to write about those things uh, in order to prepare to make amends. And there were amends I didn't want to make, still, after many years. And my sponsor said, well, don't focus on nine, focus on eight, and just be thorough, which I was. So that got me to nine. And the 12 steps and 12 traditions of OA says in the ninth step, to amend something means to change it. We complete our amends for our wrongful actions in the past by changing our actions in the future. This is especially important when making amends to ourselves and those people close to us with whom we repeatedly harm by our patterns of behavior. Without help, I forget to put myself on the ninth step list. We owe such, such people living amends. The words we say to them will not be nearly so important as how we act toward them from now on. Were we to apologize, but then go right on hurting them, our words would be empty indeed 
and a real improvement in our damage relationships would be unlikely. Only by permanently changing our harmful attitude and action can we make it up to ourselves and our loved ones for the hurts of the past. 15 minutes. All right. So, what I'm trying to say, and I'm not sure if it's clear, is that when I make amends, I don't just say I'm sorry, because that I'm sorry is not very deep. What I have to do for me, and this is only for me, is say, you know, I've made mistakes, and these are what they are. But those mistakes are not me. Let me show you by the change in my behavior just how uh, profound my embarrassment at my prior behavior and how deep my commitment to change. Um, I've had good steps, good night steps and bad night steps. Uh, I remember going to a girl who I had raised from the time she was six months old until she was like 13 and being filled with shame that I was such a poor parental example for her. And she was about 40 when I had this interaction with her. And I told her, look, I'm so embarrassed by what a crummy role model I was for you. Um, and I feel like a really lousy person because of it. And she started to cry. She said, Jimmy, you taught me my letters. You taught me my numbers. You wish me to bed every night with the rainbow of angels over my head. My father sexually abused me, which I didn't know anything about. And you never put a hand on me. You're not so bad. And from that you're not so bad came this golden moment of understanding and forgiveness. Um, so what happens then is where I was at the end of step nine and the book says the AA big book if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. And so that's my experience of the ninth step. I'm done. <laughs>